Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas-Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me today. This is the discussion of Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and 5 in the New Testament about the temptations of Christ. And I think it's important that we talk a little bit about this. Christ had a mortal experience. He was subject to all the same appetites, desires, passions, and temptations that exist in this world that the rest of us pass through. Elder McConkie, in his first volume of his New Testament commentary, says, to work out his own salvation, he had to overcome the flesh, bridle his passions, control his desires and appetites, and resist the tempting wiles of Lucifer. Thus, he was called upon to suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Though he dwelt in the flesh as the Son of God, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. You know, over the years that I've been a member of the church, my entire life, occasionally I'll hear, not too often, but occasionally I've heard people say, well, it wasn't really fair. Of course, Christ was the sinless one because he was half God. He was the Son of God in the flesh. So, you know, it must have been easier for him to resist temptation and to be perfect. But this is a complete misunderstanding. And what we read just now, the thoughts of Bruce R. McConkie, should help us understand that. Even further, I think this is a really lovely treatment of that topic by C.S. Lewis that many of you will have heard. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. I think that's beautiful and really inspired that it's only when we are trying very hard to be good that we recognize how much the adversary would like to sift us as wheat. And he can come at us. He can rear the head of temptation again and again when we are trying to be good. We've all heard the stories, right? Maybe a family was, you know, trying to get to the temple for the first time so that they could be, the parents could be endowed and the children sealed to the family and everything goes wrong. You know, bad weather, car breaks, downs, you know, whatever, somebody gets sick. I mean, the adversary does not want us to progress. He does not want us to be good. So when we are working to be good, that's who he's interested in. He's not so interested in the people who have given all the time to temptation. He's already got them. It's if we are trying to be good, if we care about being good, that sometimes the adversary really rears up his head and creates, you know, greater temptations. Now, let me, let me emphasize that once we have been pretty consistent, again, my same phrase here, right, that we are boringly consistent in our obedience. Not perfect, not finished yet, but very consistent. There is a reduction of that pressure. What I mean is that we don't 
have to fear that if I am trying to be good, that it's going to become harder and harder as I go through life. It actually goes the other way. Once we have kind of crossed over Jordan, so to speak, and we have learned to harness the natural man as a pretty good default setting, then just as it says in the scriptures in James, resist the devil and he shall flee from you. We can gain power over temptation. We can gain power over the adversary so that we are not always you know, subjected to his storms and his trials and temptations. Now, not that we shouldn't be vigilant. We should always be vigilant. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. So is the price of righteousness, eternal vigilance. But not fear, not thinking that, oh no, it's going to get worse and worse. Remember, in order for an appetite to grow, it must be fed. I've talked about this before. You know, if you eat a lot of sugar, you know, you want a lot of sugar. And if you stop eating sugar, at first, your body really craves that sugar. But if you persist in not eating sugar for a time, then your body's appetite changes and you don't any longer really have a desire for sugar. Doesn't mean you may never eat sugar again, but you don't have this real craving for it that typically is the result of having indulged the appetite too much. The same is true of any addiction or porn, well, which is an addiction, that if the more we feed that appetite, the more it grows. The more we stimulate that appetite and satisfy it, the more and more of a substance hit we actually require in order to get that same buzz. We've talked about these things. So if we want to be more free of temptation, we need to use the power that is in us and the wonderful gifts of the Spirit, the things that we're going to talk about today, to overcome temptation, to develop that boring, consistent obedience, and that appetite for sin will be minimized tremendously. I heard an interesting story from a woman that came to see me once. She was in one of my adult religion classes many years ago, and she said that she and her husband had not been active in the church when they got married. They had both been raised in the church, but they were in a period of less active living. But then when they started having children, they really wanted to go back to church and get active, which they did. And they were sealed in the temple, and they were faithful members of the church as they raised their children in the church. And then she said that once she was in a situation where she passed a kind of a smoking area, and she caught a whiff. This was probably, you know, 20 years after she'd stopped smoking. She caught a whiff of a cigarette brand that she used to smoke when she was not active. And she said, I had a pain go through me like I could not believe. I really, really wanted to smoke that cigarette again. And she became really concerned. And she said, have I not fully repented? I can hardly believe I had that, that pang of uh, that appetite go through me again just because I caught a whiff, you know, 20 years after I gave it up. And, and I said, well, did you go and smoke that a cigarette? And she said, no, I don't want to smoke anymore. I, I really don't ever want to go back to that. And I never have. But I said, well, then no, of course you have repented. But occasionally, there might be some kind of surprising stimulus that does hit on an old appetite, and we might be like, oh my goodness, I thought, I thought that was completely in my past, and it mostly is, but, you know, appetites are funny things. So there might be that, that little hook that tries to grab us again, which is why the price of righteousness is eternal vigilance. She didn't go and smoke that cigarette because she had repented. She had changed and she didn't desire it anymore. It was just a leftover memory of a physical appetite. But she had developed by then such a, a strong testimony and such a, an obedient life that 
she was horrified at the thought that she would actually go and smoke that cigarette. That was not at all something she wanted to do anymore. But we we can recognize that we might actually have that little that little prick of appetite again later, but it pretty much goes away. That was like the first time that had happened in 20 years, she said, and I don't know that it happened again. So again, don't be afraid that if we resist temptation, it's just going to get stronger and stronger until we cave. No, if at first there might be some of that because those first few days without sugar can be tough, but then it gets easier. It gets easier. The devil flees from us when he realizes that we are not going to succumb. So going back to something that Elder McConkie wrote, Christ remained obedient and faithful in all things, and never at any time did sin gain power over him. Though he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet he remained without sin. But in accordance with the eternal laws of agency, he could have succumbed to temptation. He could have lost his own soul and failed in his divinely appointed mission. Now that's that's important, that Christ actually had that choice. There wasn't anything that bound him to obedience other than his own exercise of agency for the good. So again, when people might think that Christ had an easier time of it, no, not at all. In fact, he knows the full weight of temptation in a way that none of us ever will, because we all fall short at some point. All of us are sinners, and we need to overcome that, but Christ never did succumb. And can you imagine if he had, that we would not have had a savior of the world? So we should be so grateful that this wonderful Redeemer resisted the appetites of the flesh completely, and we can yearn and strive and hunger and thirst to be like him in overcoming the natural man, overcoming the appetites and desires and passions of the flesh, but becoming more like he is. Going on with Elder Mkanki, that he remained true to his trust, that he was faithful and obedient to the whole law, made him the great exemplar, the light of the world, who could say to all men, follow thou me. I think that's beautiful. Now, another thing we want to mention about today's lesson is to make sure that you notice the Joseph Smith translation corrections, because this is kind of a significant point, too. So looking at Matthew chapter 4, in the first couple of verses, where it says, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Okay, let's go and see the correction that Joseph Smith gives us. To be with God. In other words, he did not go into the wilderness to be tempted. We don't go to places to be tempted. We're not trying to prove anything to anybody that way. Like, here, let me see how close I can get to the fire without getting burned. No, that is a really false idea. He went into the wilderness to be with God. It's a really important clarification. We don't bring ourselves into harm's way or into the possibility of harm's way. That's, that's foolishness. That's not what God says. But he went to be with God, and then the devil came, which he always does, right? Undoubtedly, Christ communed with God in the wilderness, probably had spiritual visitors or some kind of manifestations from heaven. And what happens when there is such an open channel between heaven and earth. Well, often, as we have seen in scripture history, Satan comes right after to try to snuff it out. Again, remember this happened with Moses. He has this amazing vision of all things from the beginning to the end, is commanded to write it, and Satan comes immediately and says, Moses, thou son of man, worship me. This is from Moses chapter one, the pearl of great price. 
And as I have said before, I love the response of Moses, because what does he say? He says, who art thou? And as I think it could be translated, Moses turns to Satan and says, what'd you say your name was? Because he has seen the glory of God, and Satan has no glory. And that's what Moses says. He's like, where is thy glory that I should worship thee? Because I've been in the presence of the Almighty. I had to be transfigured in order to withstand his glory, and you have no glory. So Moses is immediately aware of the difference and is kind of like, yeah, what'd you say your name was? Who, who are you again? <laughs> so I love that. Now, Satan does have some limited power, but he does not have the power to take Christ to different places. And those are the other corrections that I want to note here. They also appear in chapter four of Luke. So you can look in the footnotes there as well, and you'll see the same corrections made to these particular events that are noted. For instance, chapter four in, in Matthew verse five. It says in the King James Version, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and sitteth him upon the pinnacle of the temple. Well, Joseph Smith corrects that. Then Jesus was taken up into the holy city, and the Spirit setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple. So again, Satan, with just a really important clarification here that Joseph Smith makes, Satan doesn't have the power to move the Son of God around the world. He didn't have the power to put him on the pinnacle of the temple. He didn't have the power to show him all the kingdoms of the earth. It, he didn't have the power to demonstrate these things to Christ and then say, now I'm going to tempt you. It's because Christ had been communing with God that Satan is trying to snuff out that, again, that channel that opens up between heaven and earth. As we know, the same thing happened in the sacred grove with Joseph Smith, who went in to pray and about to have, again, communion with heaven after the earth has not had a living prophet for almost 2,000 years, and and Satan is right there trying to destroy Joseph Smith so that this opening will not happen, so the restoration will not happen, so that the, the gulf between heaven and earth will remain huge. And of course, Joseph Smith persisted in praying and received strength and was able to overcome the wiles of the devil who tried to destroy him in that moment. So Anyway, really important, and it's important for our kids to know this. I want to say something about this. I send this back when we studied Moses 1 at the very beginning of last year. So if you were listening to me then, you may have already heard this, but it's worth repeating that when I was growing up, which, okay, admittedly is a while ago now, but the bad guys didn't win very often. You know, like they had scary movies and so on. The victims always, were well, the intended victims always overcame evil. I mean, there might be one or two casualties, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, they would pull out a Bible or they would be by a church or they would use holy water from a cathedral and sprinkle it on the bad demons or whatever, and they hold up the sign of the cross. Okay, it was a little hokey, but it always, it always demonstrated, I shouldn't say always, but in almost every case, it demonstrated that good would overcome evil. But around the time that I was married, so, you know, going from high school to college and getting married, I, I noticed that they started to have more movies where the evil would overcome the good. And at first, it was a, a real shock. It was a real shock of the ending because you always sort of expected that good would prevail, even though, you know, the, the bad, uh, whatever demons or whatever were, were getting some traction, but that in the end, they would be vanquished. And, and that didn't happen at the end of movies starting around that time. And I was horrified. I was like, what, what's wrong with this movie? What's wrong? They, like, they ended it wrong. Did somebody like fall asleep at the wheel? This isn't right. Because evil cannot overcome good. And yet, we have a lot of media and lots of messaging in our world that does make it sound like Satan somehow has just as much power as God, or more. 
I mean, why else would people worship Satan or become witches or warlocks or whatever? Like I said, really? You're going to back the biggest loser of all time? I mean, I guess there's some sort of thought there that that Satan might actually, you know, pull a fast one and overcome at the end. Well, that's not going to happen. Christ has already won the victory and God would never be defeated by evil. Light always chases out dark. So I think we want to talk to our children about this very carefully and make sure that they don't feel too vulnerable to evil. Now, in order to qualify for protection and strength, of course, we do need to be good people, but God just, just doesn't let Satan run rampant over everybody. We're going to actually read some things about that. So anyway, I think that's an important clarification. As I said, also in Luke chapter four, you're going to see the same kinds of things in the footnotes where it says that, you know, after 40 days, the devil came unto him to tempt him, but it doesn't say that the devil took him. It says in in verse five of Luke four, and the spirit taketh him up into a high mountain and he beheld all the kingdoms. And every time that clarification is made by Joseph Smith, I think it's really significant that we talk to our children about this. They need to know that nothing can overpower God or his angels or his goodness. And nothing can overpower us as long as we align with God. Now, when we start to play fast and loose with the commandments, we are putting ourselves in harm's way. And I see way too much of that happening. And sadly, in the church, we have so many voices telling us things like, you know, ridiculous things like you get to choose how you weigh this commandment, or maybe that commandment isn't for you, or maybe you'd actually be happier out of the church. Foolishness. This is foolishness. It is the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, and every time it will go down in flames. And we need to tell our children that good will always triumph in the end. In this world, admittedly, admittedly, Satan has his day. There are a lot of people who get away with a lot of stupid stuff here and evil stuff in this world. OJ probably did it. People get away with evil for a while because that is what constitutes the test. If there were an immediate consequence for evil, if every time somebody offered some ridiculous philosophy about that or or said it was okay to pick and choose which commandments you're going to obey, then you know, if they got zapped by lightning, well, nobody would be very deceived, would they? But we also wouldn't really have a chance to develop virtue and to overcome temptation because it would be obvious that we shouldn't keep our hands on electrified fences. And that wouldn't confer virtue. That wouldn't help us become like Jesus Christ. So this is this is pretty important stuff. I could go on forever, and I'm not going to, because there's other fun stuff we're going to talk about here, but it's all related to temptation. I do want to say this about the communion time with God. Last week, we talked about the power of our thoughts and how many of them are repeated day after day. We get into these neural pathways that are actually almost like electrical circuits that we've completed with the little firing of those neurotransmitters in our brain, and they've created these pathways. And if we persist on these pathways day after day and never invest the energy and the intention to change from like negative thoughts to positive thoughts or from fear to faith, you know, we can get stuck in those thoughts forever. So we talked about that. We talked about, it wasn't a comprehensive discussion of it, but I did want to remind you of the power of our thoughts and how important it is to exercise our faith and to believe in God, believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to trust them. I talk about trust a lot because I see how important it is in my own life and in the lives of those that I love. So anyway, let's talk about that communion with God for just a minute. I wanted to share this saying that I found when I was in seminary, there was some assignment, we had to go look up some quotes. And this one was by David O. McKay. And it's very brief, but I love it. It says, spirituality is the result of a long-term acquaintance with God-like thoughts. Spirituality is the result of a long-term acquaintance with God-like thoughts. Just, isn't that beautiful? It's so simple. 
So how are we going to do that if we have a lot of negative thoughts in our mind, if we are overcome with fear, if we are overcome with negativity? We need to find more about how God thinks. We need to know who we worship and what we worship. How great is our God? And we need to cultivate that awe and wonder and think like he thinks. He tells us right in Scripture and in the words of our prophets, which are so abundantly available in our world, he tells us who he is. And we need to cultivate those thoughts. In fact, sometimes when we are caught in negativity, it is good to think like, what would God say about this? What would God's word be to me? And if we are honest and we have studied the scriptures and the words of the prophet, we can come up with that answer. And we know that God is not critical and he is not mean or rude or harsh. He does condemn sin because sin destroys the people he loves, his very own children. He will not countenance sin, but he loves us. So we will not hear critical words. We will not hear those negative thoughts that so often you know, take over. As, as we mentioned last time, 80% of our thoughts typically are, are negative, at least you know, the typical human being. And we can help to change that in our own minds, in our own lives. And then we can, we can have a better acquaintance with God-like thoughts. So pondering and prayer are so important, taking the time to have God-like thoughts, pondering over the scriptures, not just reading and checking a box, but thinking about them. What does it mean? You know, what does God say? Choosing our favorites, trying to memorize some if we can. You know, what is taking up our thoughts? We can develop new neuropathways. We can change from negative thoughts to positive ones. It takes an investment of energy. It takes intention. I mean, if it were easy, everybody would do it, right? So we do need to to be intentional about it, but the Lord will help us. I think that we also need to make sure that we take advantage of these wonderful parts of the gospel. Every week when we partake of the sacrament, we are given some time to meditate, to ponder during the sacrament about Jesus Christ, God-like thoughts in our gratitude of the Savior and his redemption. In the temple, we are in a place of guided meditation. And again, we can have God-like thoughts if we attend the temple and we don't bring all that noisiness with us in our brains. Sometimes in yoga, they call that the monkey mind, you know, it's just jumping all over the place. But if we can put some energy into it and try to clear our thoughts and then really focus on the things of eternity when we're in the temple, these things can help us gain spiritual strength. Okay, back to this idea that Satan doesn't have power over us. I want to talk about that a little bit more in some of the quotes or scriptures that I came across this week. This is from the temptation on the church website in the gospel topics area. Each individual can defeat Satan and overcome temptation. Each individual has the gift of agency, the power to choose good over evil. Those who humble themselves before God and pray continually for strength will not be tempted of that which they can bear. Now, that is a very clear condition. If we pray continually for strength and we humble ourselves, well, the order is reversed, right? If we humble ourselves before God and pray continually for strength, then we will not be tempted of that which we are able to bear. I think some people skip that first part, the the conditional part, and they just think, oh, you'll never be tempted above what you can stand. That's not true. We can foolishly put ourselves in through pride and and carelessness or, you know, deliberate, casual attitudes toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can put ourselves in situations that we will not be able to overcome if we're not wise. So we want to teach our children to be humble before God. And we've talked about this so much. Here we are in a world where all hierarchies are deemed to be oppressive. And that even the idea that there could be an, an ultimate I am, our creator who tells us how to live in order to magnify our potential, is seen as, you know, oppressive by people. 
in this, you know, terrible glorification of the individual that our kids are, are all around, you know, that as we said, we put ourselves on the throne, not God. So we really need our kids to push back against that. We need to help our kids and say, no, if we want to be free of temptation, we must humble ourselves. We must acknowledge the greatness of God and celebrate it. Be grateful for it because he is the great I am. He is the one who has marked the path and led the way. And we can follow and he will help us on that path. Alma 34, 39 Yea, and I also exhort you, my brethren, that ye be watchful unto prayer continually, that ye may not be led away by the temptations of the devil, and that he may not overpower you, that ye may not become his subjects at the last day, for behold, he rewardeth you no good thing. He is the biggest loser of all time. Let us never forget that. So again, some conditions to the blessings that come that we can overcome the devil by being watchful unto prayer continually. Let's go on. President James Faust made this beautiful statement. We need not become paralyzed with fear of Satan's power. He can have no power over us unless we permit it. Now, that's so true. And I've mentioned this before when I taught at BYU. Sometimes we would talk about Matthew 10, where Christ says, fear not them that can destroy the body, but fear only them that can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. And I would say, who can destroy the body and the soul in hell? And they would say, Satan. And I would always respond, "Mm, think again think again. Satan does not have that kind of power unless we allow it through unrepented sin, through our own pride, our own lack of obedience, and then not repenting of our sins, then Satan can enter in. And then if we let him stay, he will stay and we can be destroyed. But that is our power. It's our choice, I should say. It's our choice. And if we repent and then and then work to be more obedient as we continue and We have less and less need for that kind of repentance. Now we're into more refinement types of repentance. Then Satan will flee from us. So once again, he can have no power over us unless we permit it. Going on with President Faust's statement, he is really a coward. And if we stand firm, he will retreat. The Savior suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the Lord never wavered. His answer was quick and firm. Get thee behind me, Satan. And again, we've mentioned this before. James counseled, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So this is where it's not like, oh my goodness, I can tempt Satan myself and and prove how great I am. No, it is I align myself with God. If I align myself with the Savior, then I can have their power in my life to overcome Satan and resist his temptations and be less and less even in his arena of concern. But not that I'm going to drop my vigilance. I I don't like it when people say, I mean, honestly, forgive me, but I don't like when people say things like, I would never, you know, (laughs) or my child would never. That's even worse. Some words should never leave our mouth in a string. And those are some of those words. It's foolish to say those things, in my opinion. I think, I think what we can say is that I want to stay faithful and I am doing the things every day that will help me remain faithful just the conditions we've been talking about, watching and praying and living the commandments and seeking God. We'll talk about some of the other things we can do as well, but that's how we stay faithful. It's not by coasting. You know, the world's rotating under our feet, so you don't ever really stay in the same place. You're either growing or you're shrinking. So be careful. It's not about saying like, I am somehow above any temptation. It's about choosing every day the path that will help us resist the devil, and he does flee from us. Then, let's see, here's another one. Pray always 
that you may come of conquer. This is from the Doctrine and Covenants section 10, right? That you may conquer Satan, that you may escape the hands of the servant of Satan that do uphold his work. And then Nephi taught, whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. Same idea repeated again and again in scripture. And along with that, let me throw in something else that we don't want to just stop doing things. We want to start doing things. So we stop doing anything that is sinful or driven solely by the appetites or the pleasures of the flesh that yield to the temptation. Yes, we want to stop that. We want to harness the natural man, but we also need to fill our lives with goodness. This isn't about like, I'm just going to grit my teeth and clench my fists until I can, you know, get out of this world so that I, I don't sin anymore. It's like, no, instead of just resisting Satan, I want to yearn for God. I want to show that by by coming unto Christ, by following in his path, by doing the works that he did, you know, serving my brothers and sisters, as well as, of course, well, let's get the order right. First, serving the Lord. And then, yes, loving my brothers and sisters as well, but always putting God first. As we fill our lives with goodness, there is less room left for evil. So it isn't just about, you know, restrain and resist and, like I said, grit your teeth and clench your fist. No, it's about loving the good and embracing the good and filling our lives with good. I wanted to mention that, and I've mentioned this a little bit before, but again, the consequences of sin or righteousness are delayed. Alma 12 talks about that there is a space granted unto men to repent. And what that means is that, again, if there were immediate justice in this life, it would not be a test. If every time we did something wrong, we got zapped by lightning, every time we did something right, we got an immediate reward, there would be no test because we all would recognize, or maybe on a bad day, it would take us twice, possibly three times, and then we would stop sitting and start helping little old ladies across the street because we would be rewarded for doing the good and we would be punished for doing the evil. That would be fair, but it would not be a test. What God wants is for us to learn how to do good even when there is no immediate reward and to avoid sin even when there is no immediate penalty. That is the only way we can truly become Christian. I used to tell my kids that, you know, life would be unfair even for them, even in their young years, of course, because that's how it is. And when we would talk about it, and of course, I believe in cathartic listening, you know, that we can listen and sympathetically accept what they're saying so that they can detox negative feelings or whatever. So first we listen. But once they've been able to expend all that hurt and anger or negative energy that they are feeling, and we're ready to do some rational problem solving, then this is one of the great lessons of life, which is like, well, as unfair as this opportunity is, now this presents to you the chance to prove you're a Christian. Because it's only when you do the right thing and you get kicked in the teeth for it that you're really a Christian. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's so important that our children learn to understand this. Like, Yes, life is going to be unfair, and that provides us with an opportunity to choose the good in the face of opposition, in the midst of the storm. That is true growth. That is true strength. That's spiritual weight room stuff. We've talked about it. Resisting the temptation, especially when it's unfair or we're blamed for something that's not our fault or somebody comes after us, but doing the right thing in those times and not saying like, well, I had an excuse because let me tell you, reasons are not excuses. You know this. Everybody has reasons for why they might have done something bad or wrong or sinful, but that doesn't mean they had an excuse. We know better. 
We know better now. We make mistakes, and thank heavens we have repentance. This is a big gift of the plan of salvation. God, in his goodness, knew we would all make mistakes, so he provided for us a Savior and a Redeemer so that we, through him, could be forgiven and made clean again. So this isn't about fatalism, but it is about learning to get better at it. As I used to tell people, you know, there's not supposed to be like a revolving door in the bishop's office where we're in there every week repenting of, it, of the same sin that we did before, or, or maybe a new version of the old sin, but we're not really growing. We want to become more powerful, more lined up with the power of heaven so that we can, we can grow and become, you know, recreated in his image. Okay, I'm jumping around a little bit. You kind of wonder sometimes why people, you know, just should know better, succumb. And of course, the appetites can be powerful, particularly if they have been fed. So when somebody is in the midst of a stage of life where they are feeding and indulging their appetites or a certain appetite, that appetite becomes pretty powerful. They can change it. And there are lots of helps available if it's an addiction or any other kind of habituated sin. Too often, we think things like nobody will know. Big mistake. That's very seldom the case. And of course, in the end, those things will be shattered from the housetop. So that's really a bad strategy. I'm actually very against those kinds of secrets. I think sometimes a spouse will expect their partner to keep the secret of their sins. And that is not required by the marriage ceiling or any marriage covenant, even even one outside the temple. It is not required that someone who is being sinned against or sees their partner struggling with certain sins or failings, that they not talk to anybody to get help and support themselves. So I've seen some situations where one partner will say, well, you can't go tell the bishop because it's my information. And it's like, wait a minute, it's your information too, because you're living with this person in marriage. So you don't have to keep to that. You, you can confide in a dear friend or family member or the bishop if you, you know, you can choose a confidant. And it is not, it's like, why do sinners think that they're entitled to privacy? <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> no, you're not entitled to privacy. Now, let's not go crazy with this, right? It's not like taking out an ad in the paper and telling everybody you know that this person is sinning. That's very hateful and destructive to do that. But but to get help and support from from people who are close and who will not condemn, but will allow you to get some support. No, you have the right to do that. And it's not fair to tell your spouse that like, you can't tell anybody this. It's not your story to tell. Well, it is their story to tell if they're living with it as well. I think another, of course, falsehood is talked about in Second Nephi 28, when Nephi very specifically seeing the last days says that, you know, in that day that many shall say, you know, hey, lie a little, cheat a little, you know, take advantage of your neighbor, but you'll just be beaten with a few stripes. So I think that there's a lot of minimization that can happen, that people start to think this isn't that big a sin. There are worse sinners out there. Well, yeah, there are, I'm sure. <laughs> you can always probably find a worse sinner, but that doesn't mean that the penalty will be will be important or that it will be negligible. It doesn't mean that. It means that like, if we are willfully sitting and we know better, and that is clearly indicated by somebody who thinks, well, maybe I can just get away with a little of it and I'll repent later. No, that's not right. God hates rebellion. So if we have that kind of rebellious or sneaky attitude about sin, we're going to be sadly disappointed when we get to the judgment day. We know better. Where much is given, much is required. You know, for a long time, I used to think that scripture when I was much younger, I used to think it meant where much is given, much is expected. But that's not what it says. Where much is given, much is required. 
And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. That's the reality. When we have the gospel light, let us use it. Let us celebrate it. Let us petition and draw upon the powers of heaven. Petition God and draw upon the powers of heaven and of our loving, loving Redeemer to help us overcome sin. And he will, if we put in our part, all we can do. And then, however short it falls, Christ will carry us the rest of the way. Again, people say things like, I can't control it, or maybe I can control it. Maybe I can control how much I sin. I'll just dabble my toes in the water a little bit. I won't go too far. Well, there are endless stories about people who tease themselves with a little sin and then, you know, fall in the deep end. So such a foolish idea to think that, like, I can control those appetites once they have been stimulated. I remember one seminary teacher drawing a line on the board and saying, okay, let's put down the different parts of morality here. Like, let's say you're having a relationship, you know, you're old enough to date or whatever, and you have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And he says, okay, let's put here's holding hands, here's here's kissing, here's hugging. Anyway, I don't remember the order necessarily of some of those earlier things, but then he got to kissing, and then he had a mark on the line for making out, and then, you know, some other touching, whatever, and he wasn't too graphic. But then at the end, he had sexual intercourse. So here's where we have committed the sin of breaking the law of chastity. And, it, you know, but here we start over here with just holding hands, right? So anyway, then he he said, I'm going to move my chalk along this line, and you as a class tell me when to stop. This is actually a pretty good lesson that I obviously remembered. So he, you know, started at the beginning and went past the holding hands or the hugging or whatever and the kissing. And then once he got to making out, he he absolutely had no pause. The minute he hit making out, he went all the way to intercourse. And he said, here's the thing. He said, when you get to that point where you're making out, you're not, you're not ever going to be satisfied. <laughs> he said, nobody really gets into some pretty heavy making out and then says, after a little while, you know, pulls back and says, well, that was good. Now, you know, should we go bowling? <laughs> he said, you opened up some pretty powerful appetites that you are stimulating and feeding. And and the natural conclusion of those appetites is to end up in that kind of sexual intimacy. And he said, so don't be deceived. You can't be flirting with some feelings and then think you can put them back in the box. You know, let the tiger out, but no, he'll come back into the cage the minute you want him to. We do need to be careful. Now, along these lines, I want to share a speech that I remember from a long time ago. Boy, I am getting old. But it's Hartman Rector Jr., who was Elder Rector, was one of the 70. He had converted to the church as an adult, if I remember right. And he gave a speech in October 1972, so a long time ago. Live above the law and be free. I was still pretty young when I heard that, actually, but it was a very memorable talk, and it's worth looking up and sharing with your kids. It's a great little resource. He has some wonderful ideas there, and he was fun to listen to. You could probably still even find that in a recording, I would think, or on YouTube or something, or maybe on the website. This is from that speech, Live Above the Law and Be Free by Elder Hartman Rector Jr. In my experience, I have found that it is very, very dangerous to fly just high enough to miss the treetops. I spent 26 years flying the Navy's airplanes. It was very exciting to see how close I could fly to the trees. This is called flat hatting in the Navy, and it is extremely dangerous. When you are flying just high enough to miss the trees and your engine coughs once, you're in the trees. Now let's pretend that the Navy had a commandment. Thou shalt not fly thy airplane in the trees. 
As a matter of fact, they did have such a commandment. In order to really be free of the commandment, it becomes necessary for me to add a commandment of my own to the Navy's commandment, such as, Thou shalt not fly thy airplane closer than 5,000 feet to the trees. When you do this, you make the Navy's commandment of not flying in the trees easy to live, and the safety factor is tremendously increased. Admittedly, the latter commandment is your own addition, and care should be exercised that you do not get it mixed up with the law and expound it as the law. Nevertheless, it is your own commandment invented by you for your own self-preservation, and if you're going to preach it, it should be expounded as such. We should studiously avoid placing ourselves in positions where we could be overcome by temptation. Paul's admonition that we avoid even the appearance of evil certainly represents an addition to the Lord's commandment, which is to forsake all evil and entangle not yourselves in the sin. But if we follow Paul's admonition, we will find the Lord's commandment much easier to live. That's a great thought. You know, think about it. And I've seen this as a counselor. Nobody gets up in the morning. I mean, no good person, let's say, or somebody who's trying to be good. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, today, I think I'll just like totally, you know, break all my covenants or break a serious covenant. We don't get up with that intention. And yet by day's end, some people have broken covenants. Now, how is that? Well, I think it really is kind of along the lines that Elder Rector is talking about here. They're flying too close to the trees. They don't intend to hit the trees, but they're really pretty close. So any number of things could happen, right? He says an engine cough. Maybe it's your gauges are calibrated incorrectly. Maybe there's a sudden moment of pilot inattention. Maybe as a flock of seagulls. I mean, there could be all kinds of things that we're not anticipating. And because we left ourselves no margin for safety, we're in the trees. And I've seen that happen time and time again. And you talk to people who have made serious mistakes, and, you know, sadly, the stories are very similar. They were flying too close to the trees. So there are decisions we can make to keep ourselves 5,000 feet or 1,000, whatever, to have a buffer. You remember the story of the guy who's trying to hire somebody who is a driver for a horse team with a wagon, and he wants to get the best driver that he can get. So several people come to apply, and he has this tryout where they have to go on this very narrow road that is next to a cliff. And if they're not careful, they can, they could fall right over the cliff with that wagon and team of horses. And yet, you know, there's the mountain wall on the other side. So in order to demonstrate their extreme skill as, you know, team drivers, one after another, these people trying out these applicants for the job, get as close to the edge of that cliff as they can to show how dexterous they are, how coordinated they are in turning the team at the right moment and whatever, so that they can, they can be right on the edge there, but never go over. And several of them do that. And then there's a guy who comes in and he takes his turn as an applicant and he drives as close to the mountain as possible and stays well away from the cliff edge. And he's the one who's hired. <laughs> yeah, the other guys thought they were really being great. But one little moment of pilot inattention or their gauges are calibrated correctly that day or there's a flock of seagulls and they're in the trees. So we really need to be aware of that and teach our children what are you doing up to these moments where where sin can happen or temptation can take over. I had a very good personal lesson on this taught by my parents. <laughs> when I was in college, Chris was home from his mission. And I, I think we may have even become engaged by then. And one of my best friends was getting married in Southern California. And we were at BYU in Provo. And I really wanted to go. She was getting married to Los Angeles Temple. And having some celebrations there later in Southern Cal. And I really wanted to be there for her. 
I wasn't endowed yet, so I wouldn't go into the temple ceiling, but it would have been wonderful to be with her on that day and see her come out of the temple and and all of that, you know, to to celebrate with the reception later and so on. And so I was thinking that, hey, Chris and I could do this. I actually had an aunt and uncle that lived in Thousand Oaks, California. So I thought we could have a chaperoned place to stay. We could drive. It's it's a long drive, but you can make it in one day if you start early and and go long enough. We could leave from Provo and we could drive all the way through on on I-15 all the way to Southern California and stay with my aunt and uncle in Thousand Oaks. And then the next day we could do all the wedding celebrations and stay again with my aunt and uncle. And then we could drive back in one day's time from Southern Cal to Utah. And I had it all planned out, right? And we were good kids and we wanted to keep our covenants and all that kind of stuff. So there wasn't going to be any, you know, trouble on the road or anything like that. We were going to stop in Vegas and get married or not get married, but get too intimate. So I... I started asking my parents, hey, what do you think? You know, I didn't own my own car or anything, but I was like, hey, what do you think? We could do this and go to my friend's wedding. And they were like, no, (laughs) which just adamant, like, no, we don't think that's a good idea. And they were really, really kind of immovable. And I was sort of shocked because I was a really good girl, you know? (laughs) So I'm like, I can't. And this was my response. You know, I can't believe you don't trust me. Like, what's that about? I can't believe you don't trust me. I'm such a good person. (laughs) I really don't look for trouble. I'm I'm obedient. I'm not rebellious. You know, I was floored. I was just so surprised that they wouldn't they wouldn't trust me in such a situation. Anyway, I probably pestered them a little bit for a while. And one time I was on campus and I was in my dad's office. I remember it was just the two of us. And I told them again, I said, I really, I don't understand why you don't trust me. And my dad, I guess, was just tired of all the, you know, complaining, <laughs> pestering. And his response has stayed with me my whole life. He said, Lily, there are some situations in which I don't trust myself. What a great lesson that was for me. That was a terrific lesson. I've never forgotten. I've always been grateful for it. And I pass it on to my own children. There are some situations in which none of us should trust ourselves. Why do you think we don't send missionaries to go proselyte in the red light district? Do we send them into the brothels to teach the prostitutes? No, we don't. Why? Because God doesn't love prostitutes? Well, yeah, God does. He loves all his children. So why don't we send missionaries into the red light district? Because it's not safe. It's not safe. Why would we put our head in the lion's mouth and then be really surprised when it gets bitten off? That's foolishness. Now, if a missionary meets a prostitute at a grocery store or someplace neutral like that, and they show interest in the name tag and whatever, and they can say like, oh yeah, I got a book of Mormon for you here, or we'll get somebody to take it. And they send the sisters to meet with that prostitute, probably in a member's home or in the chapel with backup. We create safe situations. We fly 5,000 feet above the trees, brothers and sisters. That's what we do if we're wise. We want to teach our children to be wise. Boy, these days, I mean, we've got all kinds of young people who are calling themselves I don't mean to scoff at this. I know sin happens. I know we have a wonderful Savior who can help make us clean again. But I'm just really kind of disturbed by the, the idea of being a technical virgin. That, that's disturbing to me. Because I'm like, what does that even mean? That you were, you know, which way did you drive your team of horses? You know, sounds to me like that's right at the cliff edge. And you've already crossed some lines, frankly but somehow you didn't go all the way over the cliff. Well, I'm glad you didn't go over the cliff, but that's no way to live your life because it's almost like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. Let's see if I can do almost everything except really break the law of chastity. Well, you have broken the law of chastity when you've crossed some of those lines that come long before, but 
Yes, we can repent, and thank heavens for it. Without Jesus Christ, every one of us would be lost. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, how can we teach our children? Well, I'm trying to say how we can teach our children. To stay far away from the cliff edge, to stay 5,000 feet above the trees. It is wisdom. My parents taught me that lesson. I was already a good kid, but this was a good lesson that I never forgot. There are some situations in which I don't trust myself, and I don't put myself in those situations. And neither must we allow our children to, to dangle their toes over the, you know, the cliff or the, you know endless pit. Now, they make their own choices ultimately, but there's a lot we can do to teach them these lessons. Now, my parents were wonderful people, and they were pretty kind in so many ways that they actually decided for all four of us to go. So my mother and father and Chris and I drove all together to Southern California and stayed with my aunt and uncle and were able to celebrate for my friend's wedding day, and then we, we came back to Provo altogether. So they were extremely kind. I know that's not always possible to have that kind of flexibility. And even had we not gone, I would have been incredibly grateful for that lesson. It was a valuable, valuable teaching for me. And I know they taught me that because they loved me and because they knew God loved me. And it was much easier to stay clean than have to become clean if we had had a breakdown somewhere and stayed somewhere, I mean, you just never know, but why put your hand in the lion's mouth, right? So let me share this from the church website. Avoiding tempting places and situations is important. Places or situations where temptations are likely to come should be avoided. Inappropriate material in magazines, books, television, movies, and music, and on the internet should also be avoided. Obviously, again, why would we flirt with disaster? I love this statement by Elder Irene from a speech called Spiritual Preparedness, Start Early and Be Steady. That's a nice title. Spiritual Preparedness, Start Early and Be Steady. From October of 2005, there is another even more important preparation we must make for tests that are certain to come to each of us. That preparation must be started far in advance because it takes time. What we will need then can't be bought. It can't be borrowed. It doesn't store well, and it has to have been used regularly and recently. What we will need in our day of testing is a spiritual preparation. It is to have developed faith in Jesus Christ so powerful that we can pass the test of life upon which everything for us in eternity depends. That test is part of the purpose God had for us in the creation. So the great test of life is to see whether we will hearken to and obey God's commands in the midst of the storms of life. It is not to endure storms, but to choose the right while they rage. And the tragedy of life is to fail in that test and so fail to qualify to return in glory to our heavenly home. That's so beautiful. I've probably told this story before, or this I've shared this image, I should say, before, but I used to tell my kids, if we hear, heard one of those stories about like, gosh, I you know had never paid my tithing or I hadn't made my tithing for a long time, and then I decided I was you know down to either tithing or rent or tithing or tuition or one of those stories, and then I you know prayed about it and I thought, okay, I'll pay my tithing, and they do this in a great act of faith, and then this check comes in the mail or somebody shows up and pays for the, what they need, and and they know that they have a witness of tithing, and I think those are wonderful stories. God is so generous and kind about giving us that witness after the trial of our faith. He does do that. Not in every case. I mean, it depends on other variables as well, right? But 
usually at the beginning of a road toward obedience, we do get those kinds of manifestations or little miracles or blessings, sometimes a big one. It's like listening to children's prayers. If you want to see miracles, let you know, hang around while little children pray for what they want and what they need. And God really wants them to know that he's there. So if we can have the eyes to see and help them to have the eyes to see, God answers little kids' prayers. But then he doesn't want us to remain at that level, that remedial level of just beginning faith. So he wants us to stretch. He wants us to be able to deal with opposition, to, to develop some real muscle in the spiritual weight room of life. So I would tell my children, and then we're going to see you know, what happens next. So, okay, first time you pay your tithing or whatever, you know, check comes in the mail. But now let's see if you can do it with one hand tied behind your back. How about with both hands tied behind your back? How about standing on one foot, you know, hopping, blindfolded, barefoot, on tacks, in a snowstorm with people spitting you? Oh, there's a tithe pair. <laughs> I think that's how it works, brothers and sisters. In order to stretch our faith, in order to increase our spiritual muscle, this is the spiritual preparedness that President Irie is talking about. Start early and be steady. Over time, that that muscle grows. That spirituality, that long-term acquaintance with God-like thoughts, that that desire for good, that inclination towards towards Christ, that trust in God, all of those things become more powerful as we continue to be obedient throughout the storms of life, in the midst of the storms of life. And as we do that, we grow to be like him, our Savior. It is a wonderful plan, and it works if we will yield ourselves to it and participate and not waste those struggles or trials with foolishness saying like, well, where's the blessing now? Because in some respects, you're not a real tithe payer until you pay your tithing and all you get in the mail are bills. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. But again, it's like I was saying, this is our chance to prove we're Christian, that we can do it standing on one foot, that we can do it with our hands tied behind our back because we love the Lord. We want what he offers us and we trust there is nothing better than what God offers us. You know what? I'm going to kind of bring this, I'm going to wind this down. I have a lot of other quotes, and I'm going to save them for another time. Oh, I do want to mention this one, though. Here's, I'm just breezing through here. President Thomas Monson, who at the time was the first counselor in the first presidency, this was back in 1979, in his speech called Be Your Best Self, he said, as we love the temple touch the temple and attend the temple, our lives will reflect our faith. As we come to these holy houses of God, as we remember the covenants we make within, we shall be able to bear every trial and overcome each temptation. How many times have we heard this lately? There is power in temple covenant and temple attendance. We can access that power if we keep those covenants make those covenants, keep those covenants, and then renew them as we attend the temple and do for others what they cannot do for themselves. It is not just an act of service to the dead. It is a service towards ourselves as we can, again, commune with God-like thoughts. We can feel the power of the Spirit that is in the temple. It is His house. Every temple is a house of the Lord. We put it right there on the front of the building. But we have access, and they're going up everywhere. They're going up everywhere. How wonderful that the Lord is blessing the world with so many temples so that we can seek and receive and enjoy the power and the spirit that comes from temple attendance. This is a huge help in our resisting temptation and overcoming trials. I'm going to end with a quote by Elder Tad Collister, who was of the 70 and then in the Sunday School Presidency. 
And in fact, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the rest of these quotes, the ones that I've shared and the ones that I haven't, and I will post them on Patreon. So if you are a $10 or a $13 subscriber, you'll have access to that material. You can go to patreon.com forward slash choosing glory, and you will find them posted there for the $10 or $13 subscribers. Here's this quote by Elder Collister. Every temptation proves a crossroad where we must choose between the high road and the low road. On some occasions, it is a trial of agonizing frustration. On other occasions, it is a mere annoyance, a nuisance of minor proportions. But in each case, there is some element of uneasiness, anxiety, and spiritual tugging. Ultimately, a choosing that forces us to take sides. I love that. That in every case of temptation, whether large or small, there is a spiritual tugging, ultimately, that forces us to take sides. Neutrality is a non-existent condition in this life. We are always choosing, always taking sides. That is part of the human experience, facing temptations on a daily, almost moment-by-moment basis. Facing them not only on the good days, but on the days we are down, the days we are tired, rejected, discouraged, or sick. Every day of our lives, we battle temptation, and so did the Savior. It is an integral part of the human experience, faced not only by us, but also by him. He drank from the same cup. I love that. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is what we're doing. We are choosing glory. One glory or another. Are we choosing celestial, appetite-driven glory, or are we choosing something better, a terrestrial, suppressed, hardest natural man glory? That's much better. We're no longer a problem to others or to ourselves. Or are we going all the way? Are we choosing celestial glory because we know that what God offers is better than anything else, and we trust him implicitly? We trust him eventually every time and all the time. We can grow in that trust. If we're not there now, we can be. We can be. We need to do it his way, and we will be abundantly blessed. It doesn't mean we won't have trials because God wants us strong. He wants that muscle to grow, and how wonderful is it that he gives us a perfect plan that allows for us to have as much as we want of what he offers. We can build Zion. We can choose glory. Let's do it, brothers and sisters. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.